everybody, and welcome back to the show. You're listening to Season 2, and this is, I cannot believe it, Episode 9 of the History of Religions and Their Gods. And I am your host. I am the skeptical ghost heathen, and I am an ancient history enthusiast as well as a hobbyist of ancient religions and, of course, their origins. And so today is April 21st, and we are in 2021, and this episode is simply entitled, Examining the Epistles for an Earthly Messiah. So in this episode, we will continue to examine the works of the earliest Christians, or those Messianic Jews consisting of the works of Paul, John, Peter, and James, to see what they have to say about their Jesus in a historical setting versus a celestial realm as most accepted during this particular time. So these are the earliest surviving Gospels that we have to help us paint a better picture of what the first Christians may have believed and perhaps understood. So thank you all for listening, and please share with your friends if you think that they would enjoy this show as well. And please help spread the love. And if you give me an hour, I will give you the history of the world and so much more. So if you're ready for this trip, If you're ready for this adventure, let's do it. In the book, On the Historicity of Jesus by Dr. Richard Carrier, We cannot count as evidence any forgeries or demonstrable interpolations among the epistles. Fabricated evidence of historicity is simply not evidence of historicity at all. Although if forgeries or the other epistles let slip evidence of non-historicity, that can actually be quite telling to us, and a few examples of these can actually be found. So as an example here, We have the epistles from James and of 1 Peter, the first book of Peter, but they are oddly silent about a historical Jesus, but rather support a celestial one, which is oddly later rectified by the forgery of a second letter from Peter, and perhaps by the forgery of the epistles from John, since 1 John 1 through 3 seemed to serve a very similar purpose as did 2 Peter 1.16 all the way through 2.1 to place a historical Jesus into the scenario. Indeed, it even appears to protest too much. Thus, were produced letters from all three of the pillars of the church, and indeed these letters were also arranged in the New Testament in the same unusual order that Paul names them in his letter to the Galatians in 2.9, placing Peter not first or last, but between the brothers James and John. And the letters from each counts up to three. One from James, two from Peter, and three from John. This is an obvious contrivance. Then following them is the epistle that we get from Jude, literally Judas, who we already established was an invention of anti-Semitism, which also makes no reference to the historical Jesus for us, not even to claim that the author was his brother, despite introducing himself as seen in Jude 1, as the brother of James. Notably, Jude concurs with one Clement in suggesting that the words of Jesus only came to be communicated to the world through the apostles. He says this in Jude 17, making no mention of disciples or of Jesus having preached to the public at all. 
So in the epistles of James, this particular author makes no mention of it being the brother of Jesus. Instead, in James 5.11, he imagines that all Christians have seen Jesus die, just like Clement said that he did, and implies Jesus has never been on earth before. He will only one day come. He says this in James 5, 7 through 8. James does not say Jesus is returning, with quotation marks, or coming for a second time. Such a specific notion is never found in the letters of Paul either. It does appear that as far as this author knew, Jesus hadn't been on earth at all. This James also says things that later appear on the lips of Jesus in the Gospels. Written a little bit later, right? 25, 35 years later. Yet were clearly not words of Jesus at all when the author for James wrote them. Again, 25, 30 years before. So the sequence of events is again reversed. Sayings came to be invented for Jesus by adapting sayings from common lore, lost scriptures, and even the apostles themselves, whether they were real or fictional. This author for the James was also written by someone that was defending a Torah-observant sectarian of Christianity, the original sect before Paul's innovation, if you recall from what we talked about before in previous chapters. Exactly as Paul implies, James the Pillar had done in Galatians 2, 9-12, this later, thus, this letter, I'm sorry, might be an authentic letter from the original, actual James, who was not the brother of Jesus, if you recall, we talked about that, but of the other pillar, John. See the example in Mark 5:37. That this letter looks more like an agreement with mythicism is definitely noteworthy. Then we have to take a look at 1 Peter. It looks similarly curious as the book of James. We know that this was written by a different author altogether than whoever wrote Peter too. Very divergent styles, if you would. So could it have been written by the actual Peter himself? We cannot know this for absolute certainty. But it's noteworthy again that knowledge of a historical Jesus is conspicuously absent in one Peter. Again, same that thing that we've seen in through the 20,000 words of Paul. The author only describes himself as an apostle, not a disciple, and 1 Peter 1 1, which in 2 Peter 1 1 emulates. So in 1 Peter 1 10 through 12 describes the actual process by which facts about Jesus were discovered, as in scripture and revelations to the apostles. Jesus having ministered to the public and have been known to anyone in person again, conspicuously absent here. This is mythicism in a nutshell, wouldn't you ask me? Nor is Jesus even quoted in this letter, not even back to anything that it even argues, even though it contains extended summaries of moral advice. Instead, Peter's knowledge only comes from Scripture, for example, as seen in 1 Peter 2, 6-8, which frequently cites to back what he says in 1 Peter 3, 8-12, where Jesus' teaching on the golden rule and turning the other cheek are directly on point, yet strangely not mentioned. We get instead just a quotation from Psalms and Scripture. Nor is in any event in Jesus' life brought up as an example of or encouragement, other than mere fact of his suffering death and only in very vague terms. Now, for example, this letter mentions Jesus having shed his blood as ransom for all. 
We see this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 through 19, and being resurrected by God, as in 1.21. But those are facts that are already expected in this type of mythicism, right? When contrast with the other messianic cults that we talked about that were happening throughout Rome and throughout Egypt and throughout um, Babylonia and throughout Persia, all these are very, very similar to one another. And it's not a surprise. It'd be more surprising if it wasn't this way. So in contrast, it mentions Jesus having only appeared in a manifestation or by revelation, as seen in chapter 1, verse 20, rather than a man born or lived, chosen from among men, which is not a remark that we should expect from historicity. This letter also says Jesus will actually visit us, but only in the future, as if he had not done so before, as in seen in 2, verse 12. It then says that Jesus suffered, Okay, and his enduring that suffering is an example we are to follow when being persecuted as Christians, as seen in verse 2, 21, concluding the argument of what's in chapter 2, verses 13 through 20, and also seen in chapter 4, verse 13, and that part of what he endured was being abused without speaking or fighting back, as in seen in 2, 23, and being crucified. 224, but also cites no authority for these facts but through Scripture. In fact, all Peter does here is quote and paraphrase material that he's found in Isaiah 53 and directly quoting Isaiah 53 9 and in verses comparing that to Peter 1 Peter 2.22, and then paraphrasing Isaiah 53.7 that you would also see in 1 Peter 2.23 and Isaiah 53.4 and 53.11, which you will see in 1 Peter 22.4, and also in Isaiah 53.6 that you'll see in 1 Peter 2.25. So he's creating dialogue. He's creating the scene from Scripture. Even the part about Jesus not speaking or fighting back is also a lift from Isaiah. There is no mention of anyone having seen Jesus do any of this stuff or how Peter even died, or how Peter did, excuse me, <laughs> or who the Lord's abusers were. Rather, it appears that this information had simply been learned only from Scripture alone. These authors were mining Old Testament Scripture, lost Scripture, or even folklore to create the dialogue. So, there is evidently no actual witnesses to quote other than Isaiah, who, as we learned, was actually writing about Israel. If you read everything between, uh, or leading up to Isaiah 53 and 54, and 52, excuse me. Equally strange is the fact that when Peter insists all earthly authorities are sent by God for punishment of evildoers, are always to be obeyed, as in 1 Peter Chapter 2, 13-14, he seems to have no idea that it's the same earthly authorities who killed Jesus, who, in Peter's view, could hardly have been an evildoer. Now, we are likewise told that Jesus preached to infernal spirits in 1 Peter chapter 3, 19-20, after being resurrected in 3, 18 as well as 19 and 21. But curiously, we are never told that he preached to men on earth before that. All we hear about is a celestial Jesus who suffered and dies in some sense in the flesh. 
We see this in chapter 3, 18, as well as 4, 1. And he descends to preach to imprisoned spirits, as in 3, 19 through 20, including spirits of the dead, as in chapter 4, verse 6, and then ascends back to heaven once he, once he is put in charge of the entire universe, as seen in chapter 3, 22. Now, if you ask me, this is all in agreement with mythicism. It's no different than what we talked about with Osiris or with Romulus or any of the other messianic cults that were happening, any of these savior cults. And in fact, it sounds a lot like what we've read before and studied in the Ascension of Isaiah, right? And the, and the, and the mini gospel that we had talked about um, you know, was very similar to, it was written, what, 3000 BCE, which was the uh, descension of Inanna, right? So when at last Peter tells us he was the witness of the suffering Christ in 1 Peter 5.1, possibly in what was originally a separate letter, probably not even by Peter, we must either convict the gospel of either lying, as in their accounts Peter is not present at the crucifixion, or conclude that he means by simple revelation, right? You know, he sees this in his hallucination, just like in the ascension of Isaiah, where he also witnesses Jesus being killed by Satan and his minions, somewhere between the multiple layers of heaven. The very way that Paul sees his Jesus offering the bread and the cup, as seen in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 25, or the way that James did, that all Christians saw Jesus suffer, as in James 5.11, which we just talked about. I think the later is more likely regardless. For as we will see, Peter could only quote and paraphrase what he read from Isaiah, details of Christ's suffering rather than recalling what he had actually witnessed. As we will otherwise expect to see, even his vision must therefore have been so vague on such odd details. So the content of even these epistles, therefore, is still less probable. So these count as evidence toward, I think, more towards mythicism and against a historical Jesus, based upon what we've looked at so far, and still very consistent to what the other cults were doing in the territories that we were already analyzing. They were simply co-opted by the historicizing sect because they had nothing overly contrary to their aims and could be interpreted as being in agreement with them. Even though we can see this agreement is stained and requires arbitrary dogmatic assumptions to maintain. Now, a few times in Paul's letters, and we'll even include the Pauline forgeries that were composed sometime later on, we are given actual statements of the gospel kerygma, which is the core doctrine that defined what Christians actually believed at the time. And it's sometimes claimed that these demonstrate belief in a historical Jesus. However, it is obvious that they do not when looked and examined very closely. And indeed, they make much less sense on the supposition that a historical Jesus is what these Gospels were actually referring to. The most commonly cited in this respect is found in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1-8, through 8, which we already discussed previously. But this only says that Christians believe that Jesus died sacrificially for his sins, was buried, and then rose again. And then, and it would seem only then, 
would appear to us would appear to select church leaders. But what we find odd when we take a look at this again, when we look at this and examine more closely, there's no mentioning of his birth or his ancestry, his ministry, his miracles, teachings and promises, appointing disciples, or anything else that we encounter in the creative writing that's found in the Gospels 25 to 35 years later. Indeed, as a statement of belief about a historical man, the things that it omits are very strange. Now, the fact that he is mentioned as appearing only after he died, as if his ministry and his deeds in life were wholly just unremarkable and not at all relevant enough to his status or to the gospel, it is especially strange. This gospel provides no evidence for a historical person. In fact, it supports more mythicism, again, when we're breaking out the scales. Because its content is quite unexpected on that former, but not at all on the later. And unexpected is just another way of saying highly improbable. Now, next, the most commonly cited is the introduction to Paul's letter that he writes to the Romans. And now I would like to quote this. <clears throat> Beginning the quote. The gospel of God, which he announced in advance through his prophets in the Holy Scripture, concerns his son, who was born from the sperm of David, and according to the flesh, who was appointed to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead. In other words, Jesus Christ, our Lord, though whom we received grace and apostleship into obedience of faith and among all nations for the sake of this name and among you too are called to be jesus christ's romans 1 1 through 6. so now i want to drill down a little bit into this because the specific peculiarity of paul saying that jesus was born of the sperm of david which we'll talk about shortly the rest is no less peculiar than the gospel that he recites in 1 Corinthians 15. The only source cited for this knowledge of these facts is found in Old Testament scripture. And the only fact constituting Christian belief here are that Jesus is now Lord because he was given a human body formed of Davidic seed and then appointed to supreme heavenly authority at his resurrection, which presupposes his death. Now, this is all absolutely compatible with everything we talked about with the other messianic cults that were going on at the same time. The age of mythicism, right? So not a single detail is based on anything historical at all. All of this is absolutely plausible for happening exactly like the life of Romulus or that of Osiris or the Botches cult. Any one of those other deities that we discussed previously. Now, Paul here says it is through Jesus that he and all other apostles were appointed, which again implies only by revelation, as no distinction is made between those Jesus appointed when he was alive and those who he saw only after he died. And again, no mention is made of Jesus' ministry, his miracles, or his teachings. And though now we hear something about his birth, all we get is a generic theological statement that was made from the sperm of David. Now, we're not told how anyone knew that at all, or who his parents even were, or where he was even born, 
or anything else that would make this a definite statement of an earthly existence in a human history. And, and not just doctrine of heavenly incarnation like the other angels, or you know, such as like Osiris himself, or like Romulus, right? This gospel still really looks really, really weird and unconvincing for a historical presence. As if anything that Jesus said or did as a historical man was wholly ir irrelevant to Christian belief. Like it didn't matter. All that matters is how he was created and that what God did for him after he died. That, on again, when we're weighing up the scales, that is pull, pulling up that scale really, really high on a historical sense. And it's really weighing down heavy on the mythical sense. He's so far from what we've read between the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s, and the 60s from early Christian belief, it is absolutely, absolutely at the same level and the same, the same thinking as the other mystery cults that were happening at the same time. But where does Paul find this source information from anyway to make it important enough to even mention? He refers to a verse, again, he, he, you know, he knows his Bible, he's going through his scriptures, and he finds Psalms 132.11 that basically says, in quotation, The Lord has sworn in truth to David. He will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. And then he also uses this one here. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. So with understanding that, I think Paul was actually able to really come to create his Jesus as he thought that you know, he, he refers to the only way to know Jesus is through scripture or vision. That clearly was giving him some great details, right? That gave him the Davidic line. But the problem is, as we know, historically, after the death of David's son, King Solomon, the ten northern tribes of the kingdom of Israel actually rejected the Davidic line. So it's impossible that it had happened. And the promise was actually never fulfilled, at least by the Lord, right? So these verses must have meant the Jewish Messiah, as how Paul must have understood it, right? Now, the next version of the gospel that Paul gives us is the most detailed that we get from him, and yet the most clearly in accord with that of mythicist thinking, or at least the thesis of that anyway, right? So let's just read this quote. And this one is a letter that he writes to the Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. And I begin to quote, Have his mind of humble love in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not decide to seize equality with God, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being made in the likeliness of men, and being discovered as a man in outward form. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, a death of a cross. For this act, God also highly exalted him and granted him the name that is above all names, so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bend, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, for the glory of God the Father. 
Now, this is really detailed that we see in this. And I know that whenever I have any kind of argument with anybody in a discussion over theology, man, this is usually the one that the believers throw at me at the end that basically, you know, my, I'm going to tremble and fall to my knees and, you know, accept Jesus and everything like that. So pretty interesting. So here we have an important parallel with the prefatory gospel found in Romans. The key role of the name of Jesus, found in Romans 1.5, which Jesus being exalted into celestial power at the time of his resurrection, Romans 1.4, and then Jesus being made into a man, Romans 1.3, so he could die. This is still all very celestial and mythical to me. But whereas his resurrection is declared and his death is presupposed in the Roman gospel, but here his death is declared and his resurrection is presupposed. But otherwise, it simply appears to be just an expansion on the same gospel found in Romans. Philippians compared to Romans. It still it seems very plausible to me that it's still no different than Osiris or that of Romulus. Okay, so let's, let's go dig, dig a little deeper into this. First, we're told that Jesus was a pre-existent being and he was in the form of God. We know this from Philo of Alexandria. As he tells us, there was already a long-time Jewish tradition of a pre-existent being named Jesus, who was the form of God. It cannot be claimed that Philo came up on this notion all on his own now, since that would entail a crazy, widely improbable coincidence. So we're surely looking at some sort of a derivation from an earlier divine Logos doctrine. Then we're told that this Jesus did not try to seize power from God in heaven, as by some accounts Satan had once done, resulting in his fall to the lower realms, but instead denied himself of all the power and higher being, enslaving himself either to God's plan or to the world of flesh by his being made in the likeness of men, not literally becoming a man, but assuming a human body, theoretically or philosophically, and thus wearing human flesh. When we're told that he was discovered in that form, and apparently in result was that to be of a man. Now, the later point is actually the most curious to most scholars here. To say Jesus was found, and I'm using my quotation marks, that way entails someone did the finding and mistook him for a man, right? Follow me with this really closely. We've got to break the stuff down. So who would that be? Who found Jesus in the flesh anyway? If this happened on earth or in the celestial realm? So in the original ascension of Isaiah, if you remember, it was Satan and his demons who found him in that form. And then when they discovered him, they killed him, not knowing who he really was. That's really important to know that that was early Christian thinking. So this gospel says that Jesus is dutifully obedient to God's plan to the point of being killed on a cross. Literally, the Greek meaning was upright stick, not necessarily a cross per se. Even if you look back into some of the older scriptures, such as like Wisdom of Solomon, it was literally like a tree or a stick or a post. So, and, and for this obedience, God actually rewarded him by assigning him the most high and powerful of all names. And it seems as though that this means that the name Jesus itself, as seen in his, um, Philippians 2 verse 11, 
with the result that Jesus then became God's appointed Lord over all things in the universe, in, above, and below the earth. Stay with me on this. The notion evidently being that, looking take, taking a look at Zechariah 6, that particular verse in the Old Testament, was thought by Christians to describe the events of his naming after his resurrection before he may have had some other name. So the, so the key things to notice here are that, again, there's no mention made of Jesus having a ministry or teaching anything or performing any of the miracles that we start to receive some 25 to 35 years later by the humanizing sect. So we're looking at stuff that is three to three and a half decades earlier. And the reason why we're doing this is because we want to understand what the earliest thinking was. And it is contrary to what the gospel writers wrote so far, right? But we can see where the gospel writers piggybacked again to Old Testament scripture, but a lot to what um, the epistles were, were saying as their source material. So to the contrary, having emptied himself of, of, of all he was and then humbling himself completely to the status of a slave, that would imply that, would he, that he would have no supernatural powers at all. Likewise, no mention is made of his being born to the Virgin Mary or killed by Pontius Pilate, or even the Jews, or even the Romans for that matter. Even though these had been essential components of the Gospel Creed by the time of Ignatius. Which raises the question of why they became essential components to the Christian creed. And I think we covered that in the last four or five episodes, right? But nor do we find any of these other details placing these generic events on earth or in human history at all. So key things to notice here are that, again, there's no mention of Jesus having a ministry or teaching anything or performing any of those wonderful miracles that we see in the Gospels some 25 to 35 years later. But to the contrary, having emptied himself of all he was and then humbling himself completely to the status of a slave imply he would have had no supernatural powers at all. It's a little problematic. But likewise, there's no mention, no mention is made of his being born to the Virgin Mary or killed by Pontius Pilate or even the Jews or the Romans for that matter. Even though these had such essential components to the Gospel Creed. Now, by the time of Ignatius, which raises the question of why they became essential components to the creed of Christianity. What, 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 what changed? I think we know. We already covered that, right? But nor do we find here any other details placing these generic events on earth or in human history. So, this hymn's use of the word born is also metaphysically Vague. It's a little strange. In Greek, it's genomenos, and it's used twice. Once for his being formed into the likeliness of men, and again, once for his becoming obedient. Without any distinguishing, you know, one, one, one form for the other. They're used, they use the same word. So it's odd. Just, just a little odd variation there. So is this a human birth? Or is this a celestial incarnation? From the wording that was chosen, we cannot tell. The word that he chose to use in Greek absolutely could apply for being a celestial being who was 
formed and not physically born. And so these facts are all in accord with minimal mythicism. Remember, we're looking at that scale again. Because whereas on minimal historicity, these facts are really freaking odd and highly improbable. So odd that, in fact, some scholars have had to insist that the entire passage must have been an interpolation, that Paul can't possibly have said this at all. Right? Because we talked about that. Because if 90% of what Paul wrote was about a celestial Jesus, everything, everything basically taking place, you know, within the realms of heaven, and then all of a sudden we get a few snippets that actually could allude to him having some history on earth, being born into the flesh and, you know, revealing himself to many. It looks odd being in there. And it just, from my point of view, it makes you have to scratch your head and say why. But there is no evidence. It's an interpolation from our, you know, from the scholastic point of view. No manuscripts omitted. No significant variants exist for it beyond variant spellings of a few words, which actually within editing of 300 years is bound to happen. But it also does not contradict anything else that Paul says in this or any of the other letters. And it does not in interrupt the flow of thought within Philippians 2. It even matches the thought of the surrounding argument, emphasizing the theme of Christ's self-humbling and obedience as an example of to the Christian exhorted to follow. We must conclude that this passage is fairly authentic. We must further conclude that its contents is improbable. Therefore, this evidence is against historicity and not for the historicity. So I know that you love looking at these Gospels, <laughs> but um, I think they're important to, um, to understand and, and just so we can understand the flow of this particular um, episode. So I'm going to do some quotes here. So Paul writes a letter to the Church of Galatians in um, chapter 1, 11 through 12. And so I begin the quote, For I would have you know, brethren, the gospel which was preached by me is not according to a man. For I did not receive it from a man, nor was I taught it but it came through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And then in 1 Corinthians, his letter to the Corinthians, his first one in chapter eleven twenty-three, for I received from the Lord just what I delivered to you. And then he also tells this to the Corinthians in chapter 15, verses one and three. And I would have you know, brethren, the gospel I preached to you, I delivered, I delivered to you first of all what I received, that according to the scriptures, Christ died for our sins. So, nevertheless, it absolutely could be argued that Paul must have really gotten his information and his sources from a human tradition. Based on their style, all the earliest Gospels that we've surveyed are arguably pre-Pauline, pre-Pauline, before Paul started writing these letters. And that we're talking about Peter and we're talking about James. And thus, in reality, most likely learned the usual way and not by revelation, which opened Paul up to attack among the Galatians as a possible fraud, right? Not as an apostle. So this is why he had to at least pretend that Jesus gave him this gospel material directly or that Jesus had reaffirmed it to him, even if the precisely worded creeds he picked up were from members of the church. Because to be an apostle, you had to have been sent 
by the Lord himself. As Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. It was necessary, therefore, to have learned the gospel that way. Now, when we look at the other epistles that are written in Paul's name that most closely share his thoughts and ideas, we find another summary of the gospel. In his letter to the Colossians, 1, verses 12 through 20. And here we get something a bit more grandiose, if you would, but with more of the esoteric backstory revealed to us. So let's go ahead and do a little quote here. Give thanks to the Father who made us fit to be part of the inheritance of those holy in the light. He who delivered us from the authority of the darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of his love in whom we have our redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, who is the image of the unseen God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him were all things created, in the heavens and on the earth, things seen and unseen, whether thrones or dominions, or principalities or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things are held together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he would have the preeminence in all things. He was pleased that in him should all the fullness dwell, and through him all things should fully reconcile with himself, having made peace with them through the blood of of his cross, whether things upon the earth or things in the heavens. And that, we are told, is the mystery that has been hidden for ages and generations, but now has been manifested to his holy ones, the ones whom God wished to make known that the riches are of the glory of his mystery among the Gentiles, that being the realization of Christ in you, the hope of glory. In Colossians 1, 26-27. Now, notice that despite the elaborate description here of who Jesus Christ is and what he did and why it matters, at no point is his being born and living on earth ever mentioned. Or his having a ministry or performing miracles or choosing disciples or being executed by Pontius Pilate or anything at all that would place him in earth's history. We're not told who put him on the cross, for example, or where. But what we do see is a cooperation of the Philippians gospel. Jesus was a pre-existent being, in fact, the firstborn of all creation. And again, clearly identifying him with the known celestial figure in, a, in early Judaism. And also, the firstborn from the dead, so that he would be the first in everything. He was also the image of God. There are three facts that match the Pauline thought here, that Jesus was a preexistent being. God's agent of creation, which we see in 1 Corinthians 8.6, and that Jesus was the firstborn from the dead, as in Romans 8.29 and Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 15.20, and that he was also the image of God, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. So it's very much in accord with the gospel known to Paul. Yet, yet here, his celestial being is the one who submitted to death. We see this in Colossians 1, 18 and 20. And now he has been assigned all of God's power and authority. 
Colossians 1.19. Because his blood sacrificed has somehow magically affected harmony in the universe. Colossians 1.20. Now, this sure sounds like a celestial demigod working in a celestial realm, doing a celestial deed. There is nothing here that sounds like a historical man who recently lived and died on earth. So far. Not that we can interpret it that way. Every time Paul or his closest successors or editors describe anything like a complete gospel kerygma, we see no clear evidence of a historical Jesus, but consistently a celestial being doing magical things in a supernatural realm, whose deeds and teachings and life, if any there were, were completely absent and somehow of no excuse me, relevance to Christian belief at the time, during the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, and perhaps even longer. But what are the odds of that? It's simply strange when you look at it this way. And strange means what? Unusual, which means infrequent, which means improbable. And we must add to all of this what we find in the book of Hebrews, which we're going to take a look at next. Now, before we roll into the book of Hebrews, which actually could even be our earliest gospel, and, and I believe, and most scholars believe, it's pre-Pauline, pre-Pauline letters. And these are the letters that early Christians were, uh, were identifying their Christ with. And this is going to be super important, a real, real, real good um, book to look at for us. But from what we covered so far, from what we've got in Paul's letters, and then what could possibly be interpolations or later second and third century, you know, editing and things of that nature, is again, 90% of what he says, of what he's telling his congregations, is absolutely consistent with the way that the other cults were teaching about their demigods. The Osiris cult, the Inanna cult, the Ishtar cult, the, um, if I didn't say Osiris already, I think I did, but the Romulus cult, um, the Bacchus cult, all these different cults that were from Egypt to Persia to Babylonia to, to you, 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 you name it. They were all very consistent with each other, including early Christianity. And that's the point that's, on, that, that, that's here. So that's why it's so important for us to go back and look at the Pauline letters and then compare them to what these other cults were believing in was there really a historical Jesus mentioned in there? And if it's such a small piece where we got these little fragments that could be led to believe that it was a historical Jesus actually on earth, you could look at it that way. But again, we don't get anything that gives us any evidence or stories of a Pontius Pilate, family, friends, miracles, you name it. We don't get that. Persecution by Jews or by the Romans, you know, that the Sanhedrin, we you know, the Jewish elite, we get none of that stuff. All we get is the fact that this celestial being that has been pre-existent since the day of the beginning of God's creation, and you know, we, we, we get all this grandiose stuff, right? But we get none of the historical stuff. So it could be Paul being very philosophical, it could be Paul being just, you know imagining this stuff and, you know, he's creating this Jesus in the flesh as he's comparing him to us. I don't know, because he, he, he died for our sins. He's got to be dressed in the human flesh. Now, unfortunately, 
things only get much worse in terms of historicity when we take a look at the most elaborate early gospel of them all, and that is in the book of Hebrews. The author for this particular text is not even named. It wasn't assigned a name like Mark, Matthew, Luke, or John. And though some claim that it was Paul, that's highly unlikely because stylistically it's completely divergent. Although it may have been composed by a particular contemporary or a successor of Paul, as most suspect was the same for one Clement, where we mentioned before that one Clement actually used Hebrews as his particular source material. But let's take a look at, you know, in Hebrews 13.13, 13, the author claims to be a companion of Timothy, which could be the same Timothy that Paul claimed to have traveled with. The author also implies that at least some of his readers were actually evangelized by the original apostles. And, and long enough ago that they should be the teachers themselves by now, as seen in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, as well as chapter 5, verse 12. And also in Hebrews 10, 32-34, the author appears to refer to their initial persecution in the time of Paul, years before, which Paul himself references in Galatians chapter 1.13. If, if these remarks are not fabrications, they would place his letters as early as the late 40s, or possibly even as late as you know, the early 60s. Now, many Christian apologetics instead would like to date Hebrews after the canonical gospel. So that would basically put it, what, into the early 2nd century? But that faces two serious objections now. One, Hebrews shows no knowledge of those gospels. It never references any of it before or any of the unique content that we find in there. It never quotes them at all, and what it does argue often seems to be an ignorance of, in terms of what they say. And in Hebrews, it assumes without explanation that the Jewish temple cult is still in total operating business. Business hours are open. And that the temple has not yet been destroyed by Titus Flavius and the Romans. And their rights were outlawed. We don't see this yet. It's quiet about it. So only one could assume that it's still in functioning order. It doesn't even mention the Jewish war yet. So this still places this prior to 66, 64, we're early 60s at the, at, the, at the earliest, or at the latest, excuse me. Both facts should date Hebrews, definitely before 70 CE, and therefore before all canonical gospels. That would make it, in sense, still the earliest Christian gospel, since it is mostly an elaborate treaty on the gospels. And why it should be believed, it just is not a narrative for Jesus or a collection of his sayings. So it's not analogous to other Gospels, and only in structure and in genre. So the first fact is strong enough. Because if Hebrews is written later, it should absolutely reflect some of the knowledge of the Gospels, right? So, And we know that the Gospels all did it with each other, or from each other. We know that Mark was written first sometime in the late 70s, and Matthew wrote some five years to ten years later into the 80s, and then Luke into the 90s, and John potentially into the late um, 110, 130s. And they all reflect back upon each other. So, for instance, we've got Matthew that regurgitates what Mark says, but embellishes it, changes it, updates it to his particular worldview and things that were going on in his particular time. Luke does exactly the same thing. He takes some things he likes from Mark. 
He takes some things that he likes from Matthew. He changes them to fit his particular scheme and what was going on in his particular worldview at the time. That Now we're talking about the 90s. The world's changing. And then John does the same thing. It becomes very elaborate storytelling. But they all reference each other. And what do they most reference? The miracles, the crucifixion narrative, Pontius Pilate. You know, all these different things are very, very key features within Christianity. And the fact that Hebrews does not bring it up, it's very interesting. But then the second fact is most telling. The overall argument of this letter found in Hebrews is that Jewish Christians should not backslide now. Don't back off. Because Judaism can no longer guarantee your salvation as a Jew. And this letter does not advocate Torah-observant Christianity at all. And the same as Ebionite Christianity way of thinking. So, if we're going to assume, along with these apologetics, that this letter of Hebrews is written after the destruction of the temple, or, I'm sorry, after the Gospels and the destruction of the temple, the fact alone that the temple cult would no longer exist anymore, and that God did nothing to save the Jews from destruction, not even as a nation, but neither to save his temple and the cult being paid to him there, would have been so extremely effective of an argument, and important of an argument in this particular context, that for the author to never use it once is all but strange. Actually, it would be impossible. Unless Hebrews is written well before the year 70, before the destruction of the temple, and before even the year 66, when the Jewish war started. Because of that fact of loan, it could hardly escape mentioning. So, for example, and this is just one example among of memory, of many, excuse me, in Hebrews 10, 1 through 4, it is clearly assumed that the temple sacrifices are still being performed. Because the author makes an argument against their effectiveness, yet the obvious argument that they aren't even being performed anymore, and there can't be the effective even if they were, it doesn't even occur to him. And so it's funny, because this particular author even asks a rhetorical question, if the effects of these sacrifices even lasted longer than a year, would they not have ceased to be offered by now? As seen in verses, you know, chapter 10, verse 2. It is undeniably clear that the author has no idea here that they had ceased at all. We must conclude then that they had not and that this letter is the earliest gospel that we have in our possession prior to 66 and probably prior to 64. So whatever the date is, this letter is almost entirely about Jesus. Yet it seems wholly unaware of his having been any kind of an earthly man at all. And I suspect that this epistle represents at least in its core elements, indeed if not its entirety, what the gospel of Jesus that Paul was preaching about and what the gospel was before the gospels mythically historicized him into an earthly man. But whether that is the case or not, Hebrews certainly appears to imagine a solely cosmic Jesus. So, the simplest explanation for this fact is that the letter preserves the gospel in its earliest form. It's important to us in so many telling things here. Rather than it being later and thus radical departure from the stories and sayings of tradition found around the gospels that we know, the Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. Those stories and sayings are completely absent here in Hebrews and would seem to be unknown to this author entirely. 
completely unaware of those fabulous stories. So, so surely if the author of Hebrews were radically departing from this established or widespread tradition, he would be compelled to argue against it and to argue for his own claims and interpretations in place of them, right? But we don't get that. He would be completely compelled to explain why he was rejecting nearly everything that those Gospels said about their Jesus. So what this particular author of Hebrews is absolutely, completely unaware of the stories found in the Gospels with this historicizing sect, right? But either way, the historicists are still faced with a very difficult task of explaining why the historical Jesus has completely disappeared in Hebrews if it was written after the fact. So there's a major problem there. The gospel repeatedly emphasizes throughout the book of Hebrews that Jesus is the Son of God and is the great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Now that's pretty foretelling right there. This is in Hebrews 4.14. And also you can see it as well as in 6.19-20 and references to the account in Hebrews chapter 5, etc. So you might notice that this sounds exactly like the celestial priest named Jesus in early Jewish theology, undertaking the very task described for the celestial Jesus in the ascension of Isaiah that we talked about before that must travel through the multiple levels, the multiple realms of heaven, to where he will see Satan and his demons and be pinned to a post and be killed and fed by some angels for three days and then even hang around for a little while in the lower realms of heaven, but not on earth. But we saw that in the earliest discernible redaction of the letter, that Jesus who passes through the heavens dies in outer space, in the sublunar heaven, not on earth. This also appears to be what the author of Hebrews believed. So I think in Hebrews 8, verses 1 through 5, is pretty foretelling. So I want to quote it really quick here. So begin quote. The sum of what we've said is this. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of his majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one have something to offer as well. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are already priests who offer gifts according to the law, and who only give service to the copy and shadow of heavenly things, because Moses was instructed to make earth copies of the things that he saw in heaven. Now, this certainly seems to say that Jesus died in outer space, because here we are told that Jesus not only performed his sacrifice in the celestial temple, as seen in Hebrews 9, but that he had to do so. Otherwise, the magic of it would not have worked. We're also told that Jesus wasn't ever on earth. Instead, what we get is he could only have been God's celestial high priest, so as to perform the ultimate sacrifice if he wasn't on earth. Because if he were on earth, he would not be a priest since the earth already had its priest, remember? It says it right there. But this Jesus needs to be a priest in order to mediate the new covenant, as seen in Hebrews 8, 6. 
And we are also told here that the same things Isaiah was told in the Ascension, that everything on earth has a duplicate version of it in heaven. That's important. This is the way that these early Jewish Christians thought. And it's clear. The implications of Jesus' blood must have been spilled on the heavenly duplicate of God's altar, not earth, because that wasn't good enough. Were there already priests making blood sacrifices, which are less effective than the celestial ones taking place in the realms of heaven? Yet Jesus, being perfect, was the most powerful sacrifice of all, as seen in Hebrews 7, 27-28. So, this particular passage that we just read in Hebrews, and this particular author, so what have we established so far? We are already pretty much aware that he was writing earliest Gospels, so well before 64, right? Well before 66 anyway. So it's, it's, it's absolutely plausible that this is the earliest known Gospel that we have. And it could be anywhere between the 30s, 40s, and the 50s, and the 60s. We just don't know. All we know is that temple cult sacrifices are still happening right? So this is before the Gospels are written, and even closer to the time that the actual events should have happened with all the miracles and the crucifixion and the persecution of Christians and everything. But we don't get that here. All we get is a story of the celestial Jesus taking place in these heavenly realms. So I think that's super important to understand as we go through this particular episode. And then additionally, it's important to know when we do see some little hints inside of the Pauline letters and within the epistles that could assume or allude to being a historical Jesus, for instance, the uh, being revealed to many, etc., or um, you know, bodily flesh or anything like that. Now you kind of get an idea because of this letter that it was absolutely happening within the realms of heaven, right? The sublunar realms, and that. Jesus would have put on this humanly form in terms of his um, becoming this sacrificial lamb, but not on earth, guys, in the heavenly realms. Even according to the ascension of Isaiah, they saw this in their minds. They believed this. It wasn't until later, a humanizing sect some 30 years later, three decades, almost a complete lifetime in the first century. This is the way they thought. But we don't need to rely on just implication here. Why? Because the author of Hebrews goes on to say exactly that when he essentially elaborates the Philippians gospel into a full-blown explanation of what Jesus did and why. So this is going to be a long quote coming from, coming from Hebrews, but I think it's going to be the most telling and super important. So um, bear with me on this, okay? Begin quote. Christ, arriving as a high priest of the good things to come, through a greater and more perfect temple, not the one that's made with hands, that is to say, not of human construction, and neither through the blood of goats and calves. So this is definitely telling us that the temple's still in order. But through his own blood, he entered into the holy place once and for all, finding eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls, and sprinkling the ashes of heifer, made holy again, whose were deified, cleaning their flesh. How much more should the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish unto God? 
And it is for this reason that Christ is the mediator of a new testament, so that by death heaven taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, that they have been called may now receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, it must follow on the death of him that made it. For a testament is only valid upon his death. It doesn't go into effect when he that made it still lives. For this reason, even the first testament was not enacted without blood, since Moses inaugurated the Old Testament with a blood sacrifice. Pretty much according to the law, all things are cleansed with blood, and without bloodshed, no forgiveness can occur. This is important, right? And so, it was necessary that the copies of things in heaven should be cleansed, cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not go into the holy place that was made with hands, right, the antitype of the true one, but into heaven itself. Now it appears before the face of God on our behalf. Nor does he need to present himself time and again, like the high priest does, who goes into the holy place year by year with the blood of another. Otherwise, Christ must have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But now, and once and for all, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by sacrificing himself in the heavenly copy. Boom! But we're not done yet, so I, I keep going here. And insofar as men are appointed to die only once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time without sin to those who eagerly wait for him for their salvation. For the law containing only a shadow of the good things to come and not the actual image of them, right, the ones on earth, can never perfect those who would draw near the same sacrifices that are done year by year, which they offered continually. Otherwise, wouldn't they have ceased to be offered? Because then worshipers, having been cleansed once and for all, would have no more sins on their conscience. But in these sacrifices, there is a remembrance of sins year after year. For it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away the sins forevermore. Okay, got one more paragraph here. So, for this reason, when coming into the world, Christ says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. And then here he basically just, this author begins this lengthy quotation from Psalms 40, verses 6 to 8. And so he put an end to the first, so he could establish the second. By this testament we have been made holy through the offerings of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Indeed, every priest stands day by day, ministering and offering the same sacrifice time and again, which can never take away sin. But he, when he offered one sacrifice for the sins for all time, sat down on the right hand of God. 
thereafter waiting until his enemies are put down for a footstool under his feet. For by one offering has been perfected forever those who are made holy. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after that he said, here quoting from Jeremiah 31 verses 33 to 34, For where the pardoning of sins be, there is no more offering for sins to be required. And this is actually just re-elaborated or regurgitated in Hebrews 9, verses 11, and then 10, 18. So now let's take a look at the history of what we've uncovered so far in the previous episodes, especially um, the last episode of season one, when we're talking about the temple cult. And then going into, you know, we know about the temple sacrifices were still going on. We know that the temple cult was absolutely under the control of Rome um, in the Roman magistrates. We, we, we know that, you know, that, that the different Roman emperors were actually putting high priests in control of the temple in very high positions. And we know that the sectarian group of Jews just, they were, they were over it, right? We're not getting our temple back. We haven't had it in centuries. And what we do have back, it's absolutely corrupted. You know, it, it, it's more of a bank. It's more of a casino. <laughs> you know, it, we, we know from the previous episodes, this sectarian group of Jews, this messianic group of Jews were replacing the temple. And the sacrifices that were, this author is saying it right here. The sacrifices taking place in the temple were no good anymore. And that this high priest, Jesus, who was the son of God, now we're absolutely making a replacement here. This, this replacement of Jesus Christ, or the replacement of the temple is Jesus Christ and its sacrifices. And you don't need the annual lamb or the annual bull. You only need the blood of Jesus one time and one time only. So here we see the unveiled entire logic of the Christian gospel. The temple sacrifices were insufficient now for salvation and had to be done away with. This is a political movement. This is, this is absolutely just going along with the political landscape, right? But to do that, a more perfect sacrifice had to be conceived. One with eternal magic power rather than the ones, you know, that only lasts for a year with the goat or a bull or a lamb, and one that can cleanse the sins to the celestial core, and not just the earthly veneer of them, right? The logic then would entail that the sacrifices had to be of a divine body, not, not a magical celestial goat, but and not of an earthly one either, and it has to be performed in the divine temple. Not the rough duplicates that are here on earth. Not the earthly ones. And the author here says that it's actually what Jesus did. That was his whole purpose. That is the sum of the gospel. So it's clear, and we understand, that we're pretty confident that this is the earliest gospel that we have. It could be contemporary to Paul's writings, but it's pretty consistent with what what Paul says, or even shortly after Paul. We, we really don't know, but we get that it's very, very different than what the historicizing sect would say. But in Hebrews, Jesus is here. He's being declared the superior replacement for Moses. And we talked about this before, right? We talked about this, that the gospel writers in the 70s, 80s, 90s, 100s 
were also doing this. And this is where they got the idea. So we should ask whether Jesus is a mythical or just as mythical as Moses was. Just one mythical character replacing another mythical character. Evidence for that, evidence for that conclusion can be found all throughout this elaborate gospel here, which again says nothing about Jesus being crucified by Pontius Pilate or conducting a ministry or performing miracles or teaching anything. Instead, when this author quotes Jesus, he says in Hebrews 10, 5, and after that he says in Hebrews 10, 15, he simply quotes the scriptures, what were written in the Old Testament. That is not somebody talking and somebody recording what he said. That's something that somebody already wrote ahead of time. It's just theatrics. He thus evinces no instances of a historical Jesus having said anything. Apparently, the only way the author of Hebrews knows to have learned the words of Jesus on, on this subject is by finding them in Scripture. And these guys all knew their Scripture. For the author actually believes that these were the words of Jesus, and not that the interpretations of the words of Jeremiah or the psalmists, because he says these are the words of Jesus, which were transmitted through the Holy Spirit to the authors of those texts. And that, therefore, this is how Jesus speaks to us through Old Testament scripture. So it's pretty consistent with what we saw in 1 Clement as well in his letter. The fact that nowhere in Hebrews, in all 13 chapters, do any historical words of Jesus even appear. Yet Jesus is often quoted, but by quoting from scripture. It's also evidence that the Gospels had not yet been written, but that there was no historical Jesus to quote from. Revelations may have been quotable, and the author of Hebrews seems aware of this, but never quotes them directly. Their content was evidently such that he never had the occasion to, or was not permitted to, perhaps, as seen in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 3-5. Now, there's further evidence that lies in the fact that Jesus in this particular gospel, remember, he has to sprinkle his blood on objects in outer space, not on earth. He has to sprinkle his blood on God's altar in the celestial realms, the better altar, not the man-made ones with man-made hands, such as by the corrupted temple cult, but by the celestial hands and by God and his angels in heaven. Though, even though he does not die in the celestial temple, he still has to carry his blood there. And only once he does this, and only after his ascension, is the new covenant established, and the sins of the elect are forgiven. Which means that the feat had not been accomplished at all, the one that took place in the earthly realms and on a Roman cross. But more importantly, this author sees no need to explain how a man crucified by the Romans could do any of this. We hear nothing about it. And why would it? It wouldn't be good enough. It has to be done in the celestial realm, this by the celestial high priest, Jesus Christ. The story changed dramatically 30 years ago, or 30 years later, excuse me. But it seems to be taken for granted that Jesus performs a sacrifice in heavens in parallel to the priest who performs theirs on earth. Sacrifices performed on earth are, 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 are feeble, they're weak. Only a sacrifice that takes place in heaven has the lasting magical power. The magic of this power. 
Now, again, what's interesting here is the logic of all of this Hebrews, it fits in the earlier redaction found in the ascension of Isaiah. It's absolutely cookie cut from this particular thinking that was re also redacted from the Babylonian princess, the Descension of Inanna story that was told 3,000 years prior. That's really interesting how much they actually took from the Babylonians, even though they were the ones that put them into captivity. It does not fit this historicizing sect, these historicizing narratives found in the Gospels told three and a half decades later. But again, fitting within the mold of a new worldview, though, things change very, very quickly. And the temple was also down. When the temple was destroyed by Titus Flavius, stories definitely changed and did not appear remotely close to what anything that Paul said or the epistles said or anything that this particular author of Hebrew said. Now, indeed, as Paul even states that we are baptized into Christ's death and buried with him, as found in Romans 6, verses 3-4. So what we might take away from this, or we might infer that what he meant is that the earthly copy of the perfect death and the burial of Jesus, which to be perfect had to be in heaven, which we already established from what Hebrews is saying, where the author of Hebrews says, that is where the superior antitypes are. So despite all of that, it is sometimes claimed that he here, at least the author admits, Jesus appeared on earth. We could assume this. But that it is actually and quite conspicuously not said here at all. There is no mention of any of this occurring on earth. The author says that to perform his sacrifice, Jesus once and for all, at the end of the ages, appeared. You, and that's the Greek word that was used, which is phaneru, in order to put away his sins by sacrificing himself in Hebrews 9.26. So the verb here is being used as a common term that's used for divine relations and manifestations. It actually means make known or to make clear or to reveal is the Greek word that Paul uses here. Then he shall appear, which is optominomai, which is a which he uses a second time in verses 9, 28. This time a verb is more concrete, is a more concrete thing, so we will observe the next arrival with our eyes. This is exactly in accord with mythicism, whereby Jesus appeared the first time in Revelation to communicate that he had just performed a sacrifice, which we see in 1 Corinthians 15, 2-8, and then he will appear using that other verb a second time more concretely in the very air above us, at the end of the world, okay, which we see in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-17. But likewise, that Jesus had a body to sacrifice, from which could pour his blood, is exactly what mythicism entails. He assumes a body of flesh in the sublunar firmament, excuse me, firmament so that he could be killed, then return to the upper heavens from whence he came exactly the way that we read the ascension of Isaiah that describes what Jesus did. And just like that, many believe happened to Osiris and to Romulus. But later on, the author of Hebrews mentions an additional detail where Jesus died. So we're going to do a quote from Hebrews 13, verses 11 through 14. And I begin the quote. 
for the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are then burned outside the camp. For this reason, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to make the people holy through his own blood. Therefore, let us go out to him outside the camp bearing the same reproach that he did. For we do not have a lasting city here, but we seek after a city to come. End quote. So from this context of this verse that I just read, the argument here is absolutely metaphorical. Leaving the camp, in the quotations over my head, meaning departing Judaism and the temple cult. Right? We know what time it is here. We're talking about the temple cult. And so the two cities are metaphors for the two worlds. The present world, the flesh, which is where they have no city at all, while their future life in heaven is the city that they look for. You can get additional information, look at Hebrews 11.16 um, and 12.22 in there. And Paul said much in the same in Philippians uh, 3.20, as well as in Galatians 4.25-26. But before the latter metaphor to work, the author cannot mean Jesus was crucified outside the gates of Jerusalem. That's in this world, right, where we have no city and is certainly not where we must go to meet Jesus now. So clearly for us to go out to him or outside the camp, it means outside of this world, into heaven, spiritually for now, literally, perhaps later, as Paul explains in Romans 8. But this also operates as a double metaphor. So follow with me here. It also means going outside the protections of the Jewish cult practice and thus leaving Judaism, for which they must bear reproach, as Jesus did when he was abused and killed. This must refer to the fact that Jesus ended at the Old Covenant with his sacrifice. He ended the Old Covenant with his sacrifice, the covenant of Judaism and the temple cult, and that he did so outside the gates of heaven as just seen as in the ascension of Isaiah that explains Jesus had to pass through the many gates of heaven as Inanna had to pass through the many gates of hell to reach the firmament and killed by Satan and his demons. He thus had to sacrifice himself outside the gate of the heavenly temple and then carry his blood back into it to effect the new covenant, as you again see in Hebrews 9. This is therefore no clear evidence for any historicity here. This is clear examples of mythicism and the way that these particular authors were envisioning their Jesus, sacrificing himself, becoming the new Moses. So the silence that we find throughout Hebrews, coupled with the many examples of exactly what we'd expect from mythicism, it makes the evidence of Hebrews at least somewhat less probable on a minimal historicity. Indeed, it practically invents and describes the first stage of it, a cosmic sacrifice of a cosmic high priest, a pre-existent being that's already known in Jewish theology. And notably, as well, there is no evident embarrassment at any of what is being described here in Hebrews. None at all. The author is completely confident that this sacrificial system makes obvious and elegant sense and requires no defense at all. Indeed, the logic of it is is its only defense. That and finding secret messages from Jesus saying so in scriptures. This author sees no need to justify, 
argue or explain how an executed convict could be this perfect celestial sacrifice if we were to incorporate the Gospels written some three decades later. It's simply not an issue for him at all. Nor is any issue raised of how he came to be the celestial high priest. No question about it. There was no discussion of his birth or his life or his sayings or his deeds or those miracles, those marvelous miracles. And there is no response here to the very Jewish polemic that would have been threatening to cause the backsliding this author is arguing to prevent, the backsliding Jews that Judaism could no longer save them, other than to defend its theological logic, which means there was no historical narrative to defend, just a theological one. Now, this is all clear enough, I think, so far, right, from going through what we know and all this background knowledge. But to bring the point home, we need to go through Hebrews from start to finish to illustrate how the whole of it corroborates all points that we just made, starting with Hebrews 1 and 2, which repeat essentially the Gospel of Philippians, which elaborations and scriptural citations as proof. Here's the first Christian's Here's how the first Christians learned of Jesus the same way that the prophets did of old. By revelation, just like Moses, God speaking to them through his son or through his prophet. So, for instance, in Hebrews 1.1, the son was a preexistent being, God's agent of creation, and was later, after his resurrection, appointed as the right-hand man, being put in charge of the entire universe. Then chapter 1, 2 through 3, the Son is the image of God, a supremely radiant being in the same supernatural sense claimed in Corinthians 2 Corinthians 4, 4, as well as Colossians 1, 15. And then in 1, 3, who is now, since a sacrifice, sitting at God's right hand, holding the world together, if you would. And then in 1 verse 3, a supreme being that is equivalent to an archangel, if you would, with a name greater than any other name. And then in 1.4, there is no nativity, no ministry, no mention of Jesus having lived on earth. Hidden messages in scripture are regarded as revealing of what God said to Jesus in his incarnation. And then chapter 1, verses 5 through 13, or about him. And then in 2, 5 through 8, yet again, at no point is this historical saying quoted, not even from John the Baptist, who is entirely absent from this entire gospel. Now, this last point I'm going to make, I think, is the most telling. For verse after verse, we were told that God said to Jesus at his entry into the lower world, one of which, in Hebrews 1.5, the gospel author later used as what God said to Jesus at his baptism. Go take a look at Mark um, 1.11, or Transfiguration in Mark 9.7, and likewise in 2 Peter 1.17, which is obviously a second century forgery, or the resurrection, which is found in Acts 13, verses 32 to 35. Though, though they're admitted to be known only from Scripture, but which here is more ambiguously said to have been declared as his entry into the world. The world, or I'm sorry, the word birth is not used here. Rather, we are told this happens when God led the firstborn into the inhabited place. We get that in Hebrews 1, 6. Rather oblique, a way to say born, wouldn't you say? But not such an oblique way to say supernaturally sent down into the world of flesh and clothed inside of a new body. The author of Hebrews later seems to assume that 
these things were actually said at his death and resurrection, not his birth, for example, Hebrews 5. But either way, we are given here extended speeches from God about Jesus, which we are told God spoke at whichever event. Obviously, this is not history being recorded here, right? This is 100% myth, as many scholars also agree to this particular point. So when immediately after this, we are told to pay even more attention to the things that we heard, so we don't drift away from them. Hebrews 2.1. What we heard means these readings and interpretations of Scripture, just as we stated. Not any kind of historical report or live testimony here. No such thing is found or even referred to here. Much of this information, perhaps regarding what scriptures to read and how to interpret them, was delivered by angels, as seen in Hebrews 2.2, while the rest of it was directly revealed to the apostles by Jesus, as seen in 2.3, who was confirmed as God's chosen by the fact that the apostles could then perform miracles, as is seen in Hebrews 2.4. Now, notably, no mention is made of Jesus being confirmed by the fact that he could perform miracles. In fact, there is no knowledge of Jesus ever performing any miracles in Hebrews. God communicates the gospel through the Lord, 2-3, and his words are only confirmed to later converts by those who heard him, not by those who saw him or met him or heard about him. Instead, those first hearers then had God's bearing witness with them, with signs and wonders and various powers and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his will, as seen in 2.4. A reference to Paul's point that Christians received gifts given according to God's will, as seen in Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6. And apostles proved themselves with such powers. The apostles could thus prove they heard Jesus by doing miracles. This makes sense of the existence of Jesus was only known privately to those apostles, such that they had to prove he appeared to them. Other interpretations are possible, of course, but not entailed at all. So far, this still weighs on the minimal mythicism versus minimal historism. So, on account of all this, we are told they now look at Jesus who was assigned to rank a little below angels by his suffering and death, crowned by glory and honor. That's in Hebrews 2, verse 9. So, the, pro the, the author probably does not mean look at, literally, of course, but they look at him in their thoughts and hopes and prayers. They consider him in such terms, a frequent sense of the verb Blepo, B-L-E-P-O, the Greek word blepo. But the same metaphor is evident even in more concrete imagery of Hebrews 12, verse 2. But what this author does, what he does mean literally is that God made Jesus into a lower rank. And again, the word is ilatu, diminish, lessen, reduce in rank or influence than an angel so he could suffer his death in the flesh, but a little lower than angels, a possible hint that he descended only to where? To the sublunar firmament and not all the way to the earth, where the more perfect altar and the more perfect temple would exist. We are then told that this makes perfect theological sense because Jesus had to share the experience of death in order to partake of all things and thus have dominion over all things in order to save us too. 
from death, as seen in 2.10. The author then quotes Jesus declaring Christians as his brothers. But then again, what he quotes is absolutely verbatim, taken word for word, out of Scripture. 2.11-13. We're then told that we could have shared in his inheritance as brothers only if he shared our death with us. Since children are flesh and blood, he also shared these in the same way, so that he could gain power over death. That's it. The devil, right? In 2, 14 through 15. And therefore be able to buy us out of our own enslavement to death. So Jesus here, likewise, by assuming a body of flesh in the lower realms of heaven, not earth, to experience temptation to sin. And to help those who experience the same. In 2, 16 through 18, as well as chapter 4, verse 15. With that said, we have a theory of incarnation that neither mentions or not even requires any sojourn on earth. Or any birth or any childhood. Or anything to do with a ministry or what we would deem the life of a historical man. It's unnecessary until three and a half decades later, of course. He simply had to assume a body of flesh and of blood and to be able to be tempted, as seen in Philippians 2, 6 by Paul. Resemble a human, as he sa as Paul says to Philippians in 2, 7, and then die, as Paul says in Philippians 2, 8. And for all that feat, he gained supreme supernatural power. In his letters to the Philippians 2, 9, this could all be accomplished in minimal mythicism, without a doubt, and absolutely compliant and coexistent with the themes from the surrounding other mythological stories that were being told within the area. This is therefore no evidence for historicity. I think this is as good of a place as any to wind down this particular episode being number nine and um, when we come back we are definitely going to revisit just a little bit more um, going through Hebrews and sayings for Jesus we really need to get down to some of that you know we had mentioned it during this particular podcast um, where so far everything that Jesus has said and everything that Jesus has done has come from out of scripture so however you want to interpret that or misinterpret that, depending on your side of the fence that you're standing, um, we have to decide, is that history or is that an author for um, writing a particular book or letter that's using source material from something that's already existed? And we'll see this through and through in the Gospels some three, some three decades later. But so far, everything that Jesus has said or done in this particular Gospel has been taken from Old Testament scriptures. So I guess it's for you to decide if that is history, if that is um, recording a historical event taking place and someone recording what somebody actually said, even when God is supposedly talking. Was somebody there actually recording what he said? So anyway, that's where we're getting to on this. And again, if you're enjoying this particular series in this episode, please feel free to share it with friends and again, help spread that love. And again, um, you know, there's a couple of different takeaways you can have from this podcast. It could either challenge your faith, 
Absolutely. It can make you feel uncomfortable. It can make you question a lot of things. And it could also really strengthen that faith of yours too. If the information that I'm saying here, you go and do some of your own research, which I really hope that you would. Go dig, go find, go read, and dig through the books and find out what was going on. Really figure out, let's prove history. Let's just not accept what we've been told since we were little kids and indoctrinated into it. So I think that you can absolutely come out of this entire thing with a stronger faith than you went into it with. So let's look at it that way. Okay, so everybody, no matter what side of the fence you're standing on, you know, be good humans. Do the right thing, and let's take care of each other, all right? Everybody, have a fantastic rest of your week. Have an amazing weekend, and take care. Peace out. Thank you.